Good afternoon and welcome to City um, City View podcast with me, Andy Sylvester. Uh, now broadly recovered from a brush with our friend COVID-19. In a minute, I'll be joined by Jack Barnett, our economics and markets reporter, as well as Elena Siniscalco, who will give us an insight into how inflation is hitting one particular sector on the ground. First, say the corporate headlines, and we'll start with Barclays. The bank is set to lose around £450 million after the bank admitted it sold more products to investors than it was allowed to. Under US banking rules, the company was allowed to sell over a three-year period, just north of 20 billion US dollars worth of structured notes that track equities and exchange-traded notes that track commodity prices and offer debt-related trades. But Barclays has admitted that in the past year it sold $15 billion worth of products more than it was allowed to under those regulations agreed with the US Securities and Exchange Commission. That is, as they say, a bit of a miss. As a result, the bank must agree to buy back the unregulated products and absorb the expected £450 million hit. An independent inquiry has also been launched by Barclays into the issue, and US authorities are also investigating how the overselling could occur. Well, quite. Meanwhile, ministers are hatching plans to try and strong arm the beleaguered ferry firm PO into rehiring the 800 workers it unceremoniously made redundant earlier this month. With Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, warning bosses they had little choice but to reverse the decision. In a letter to PO boss Peter Hebblethwaite, Shapps said he was working on proposals to require firms operating in UK ports to pay minimum wage throughout journeys and ensure that seafarers are protected against these types of actions. Shapps also said Hebblethwaite's position appeared untenable. NatWest, meanwhile, has fallen back into majority private ownership after the state ditched more of its holdings in the high street lender. Government announced this morning it's the first time since the financial crisis 14 years ago that the bank formerly known as Royal Bank of Scotland has not been majority owned by the taxpayer. The state took control of NatWest after bailing it out during the financial crisis by flooding billions of taxpayer money into the lender, with ownership peaking at above 80% after difficulties caused by an absolutely disastrous acquisition of ABN AMRO, as well as the subprime mortgage market collapsing. The government's been gradually selling off its stake in the bank ever since in a bid to recuperate taxpayers' cash in full. Economic Secretary to the Treasury, the City Minister, John Glenn, said the move is an important landmark in our plan to return the bank to the private sector. Elsewhere, Scottish Widows has announced plans to get out of tobacco and coal investments. A host of investors, including Legal and General, have urged Sainsbury's to up wages amongst suppliers' staff. And Ted Baker has rejected not one but two bids from private equity giant Sycamore, though the private equity outfit remains in hot pursuit of the retailer, we believe. Um, Jack, Elena, I'll bring you in now. Jack, why don't we start with you? Um, You've had the pleasure, if that's the right word, of listening to not just Rishi Sunak, but Rishi Sunak and Andrew Bailey as well today. Um, both of whom I think it's fair to say did their best to avoid committing too many news lines. Let's start with Andrew Bailey. Interesting comments on the Bank of England's forecasting skills. Yeah, so um, it's not it's quite rare. You obviously get uh, two speeches from the two big economic beasts in the country. So this morning we had uh, Andrew Bailey speaking at a an event uh, hosted by the Bruegel um, think tank. And it's essentially just saying that the bank has kind of given up on forecasting anything uh, because the uh, the global economic situation is so uncertain um you know obviously some of the main drivers of that is just we just don't know what's going to happen um uh, the next steps in the in the Russia Ukraine war we don't know what that's going to do to um global energy prices um we don't know how severe the cost of living shock is going to be over here um and we just essentially don't know how the economy is going to respond to all of these these headwinds are swirling around which is basically um, leaving the Bank of England in quite a difficult position to say, you know, we don't, we just essentially don't know what's going to happen um, on the spending front, uh, economic growth and mm. inflation as well. 
Um, one, a couple of things to note from what he, what he said in his um, speech. So, a lot has been made recently, um, particularly with the energy price um, prices spiraling since the, the start of the war. Is that in comparisons with the nineteen seventies that you know Britain could be facing this wage price spiral? Um, he did uh, make one prediction, which seems a bit uh, contradictory, considering the fact that he was saying that the bank is struggling to make any predictions at the moment. Um, he did say that this year, this the scale of the energy shock is going to be bigger than any single year in the 1970s. Obviously, when we had all these oil embargoes, mm. and uh, we had inflation um, almost reaching 30% in the country. Um, so it just, you know, the lines from, from the governor this morning, just reinforcing the narrative that real incomes are really going to be squeezed this year probably going to be a pullback in spending that's probably going to weigh on economic growth for the for the year ahead mm, okay so and also you know today's front page talked about that in mm. particular ey item club talking about the fact that energy bills would be a very key driver um in well i say the opposite of, the opposite of a driver in economic growth a break on economic growth um in the coming months um moving on to rishi sunak mm. i think it would be fair to say that most people would probably peg him as someone who quite likes to be seen as a free market conservative, as a tax-cutting Tory. We certainly heard a bit of that. Um, Rishi challenging that perception today, which is, I mean, there's a number of political perception issues at play here. But nonetheless, Rishi in front of the Treasury Select Committee saying, tax-cutting? No, not me. Yeah, which seems... Um to, uh, yeah, I've got to take that bit with a pinch of salt considering the fact that his, um, his May's lecture uh, last month, he did say that he, he does believe in, in low taxes, that you know, he is on record of saying that. So I'm not sure how that will be um, taken. I'm, I think it's, yeah, it, it sort of came out of the blue of that one. But, you know, he was sort of facing a, a grilling from, um, from the Treasury Committee. There was, a, there was a wide range of questions from each side of the Labour, Labour, um, Labour MPs and Tory MPs. Um, but I think the main narrative that the chancellor is quite keen to reiterate is that the government is is is, is facing tough choices at the moment you know it's got this enormous death bar that's built up as a, mm. as a result of responding to the pandemic um you know inflation is spiraling which is increasing debt servicing costs um at the moment the public finances are not in the best position than they've been for for a while so the but you know they are facing difficult choices considering the fact that um you know you've got a lot of people who are facing quite um, severe income shocks um, this year. Well, at the same time, the government is also facing quite severe um, choices in terms of the spending front. So I think that the main thing that he was trying to say is that we last week's spring statement was it was it was designed to alleviate the cost of living crisis, but at the same time, it can't it can't be spending can't reach such an extent mm. where borrowing is increasing to disproportionate levels on top of what we've already borrowed in the pandemic. And then you're getting to the point where the fiscal targets, which are, you know, you need to, um, the current budget budget to be in surplus in about three years' time and um, debt to GDP falling in three years' time as well. You can't get rid of those targets because in the long run, um, that will deal an even severe blow to mm. the public finances, which eventually will trickle down into people's living standards as well. Yeah, which is, is no good news. Um, speaking of living standards, if you're a fan of a steak... Elena, no living standards are going to be in trouble. Um, you wrote for us about farming today, um, a sector that perhaps probably City AM understandably doesn't always pay massive amounts of attention to. Um, but looking at a relatively embattled sector, um, inflation having its wicked way there too. Yeah, so um, it's a pretty bleak picture actually because it's inflation 
it's a lot of it, but it's also the war. So you have these two things compounding each other. And so you have prices of pretty everything in terms of raw materials going up. You have labor prices going up and then you have shortages because of the war. And with something like farming, you take one thing and it has reverberation on the whole chain. So mm. you take something like sunflower oil and that's hugely produced in Ukraine. Mm. Um, and there are obviously now massive shortages of that in the UK. And with sunflower oil, you also make sunflower meat, which is used to feed animals over here. Right. So then you're not having a shortage of one product, but you're having actually a shortage of two or three. Mm. And the entire thing has quite a long-term impact actually on farmers. And then you obviously have the problem with fertilizers because, because of inflation, the prices of the raw materials that make fertilizer up were going up anyways mm. um, in the last months. But now, because of the war, fertilizer, especially chemical fertilizer, are produced in Russia. And so these are not coming in. And so farmers have to produce less and the price goes up. So yeah. it's a sort of a kind of endless circle. And they're really struggling because, you know, um, I chatted to some of them and what they were saying is, you know, we can use less fertilizers and try to do things differently. This could even lead to like, you know, something more sustainable in the long term. Mm. But there's a cost of living crisis. Yeah, We're going to have to cut people on the farms. And yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, to paraphrase, paraphrase Joni Mitchell, you only know what you've got until it's gone. I think that this year's sort of supply chain crisis and the various breaks in it have shown us just how interconnected all these things are. And I guess what's really the nub of this for farmers and really producers of anything heading into the mass market is you've got supermarkets that are determined to, as much as humanly possible, supermarkets in particular, buyers in particular, trying to squeeze down as much as possible on those price rises, knowing that they will get a battering, not just from customers saying, well, this is too expensive, but almost certainly from politicians as well, if they're seen to be putting prices up too much. So you've got supermarkets and buyers keeping their costs under control that forces farmers presumably if their costs are going up those margins get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and that that's basically the rub of it right yeah exactly is the is the point about farmers kind of getting stuck in the middle mm. and it's interesting because that has a lot to do with um food in the broader sense of the way we eat you know the uk um mm. has quite an interesting story with that and there is the food strategy coming out at some point soon yeah. and you know if people are already buying cheap unhealthy food now it's going to be even more the case if supermarkets don't mm. let the prices the way they are um and so again it's it's a circle because how do you kickstart a transition in farming at this moment if you can't even keep the price of basic food yeah Affordable. I guess I guess the optimistic side of this, um, because it has just been eleven minutes of sufferably bad news <laughs> from the corporate headlines to Jack's economic update, um, to this is that I guess the UK's departure from the EU, the removal of the UK from the common agricultural policy does, for better or for worse, give the UK government a bit of a say on what policy might be when it comes to farming over the years to come. Now, should there be state aid in the way that there was beforehand? I think probably free marketeers say otherwise. Um, but at moments like this, 
when it comes to food security, perhaps government will step in. Um, that's probably a discussion for another day. But Elaine Sinskalka, thank you for joining us. And Jack Barnett before that. That's all from me, Andy Sylvester at the CTM podcast. Tomorrow we'll be joined by analysts to dig through more of the economic data. And goodness knows there's a lot of it about. From me, that's all for now. Thanks. Thanks.